Hey, and welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. We are a church that is for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We are passionate about helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we would love for you to check out our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. There you can find ways to connect with us and see what's happening at Crosspoint. Now, let's listen to this week's Sunday message. Well, if I haven't met you, my name is Brendan, and those intros never get any shorter. (laughs) Have you ever experienced a moment of transcendence? A moment that you might consider holy, set apart, something that pushes yourself beyond your human ability to recognize something divine in this world. For me, I had a moment like this a few years ago when I started Bible college. But this moment happened in a very ordinary place doing a very ordinary task. When I started Bible college, I was at this point of re-engaging my faith. And I was excited to be pursuing the call of God on my life. But I also needed to pay bills, so I worked in my family's construction company. And this did uh, excavating work, road work, so we put in storm and sanitary lines. And so I would work one day a week with my family's company, the one day I didn't have class. And so the whole crew knew I would work this one day a week. So this meant they would wait the entire week and save up all the jobs nobody wanted to do. Because they knew Brendan was coming on Friday to do those jobs. And one of those jobs was grouting. And so when you put in the new catch basins where all the water flows in, my job was to hang upside down with a handful of grout and to apply this grout around the newly installed pipe to seal off this concrete catch basin. So I was there on a Friday working as I normally do with a whole road of catch basins for me to do. And I was by myself, so I thought, you know what? I'm in Bible college. I'm going to be a good Bible college student. And I am going to start to listen to the Bible from beginning and see how far I can get. So I start listening to the Bible, go through the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, and get into the book of Leviticus. So if you've ever tried to read through the Bible cover to cover, most people fail when they get to the point of Leviticus. Because it just gets weird. You get all these weird, extreme details about this priest and these religious order. But I had a lot of catch basins to do, so I just kept going right through Leviticus. And then it just hit me how weird this moment was. Here I was, hanging upside down with a handful of grout, listening to a 2,000-year-old ancient Near Eastern document explaining in great detail about a newly established religious order. And I thought, what on earth do these two things have to do together? And maybe for you, this exact question has not been on your mind, but a similar question might come to your mind. How does following Jesus make a difference in my everyday life? How does being a Christian impact my nine to five? Or maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're exploring Christianity and you're wondering, what difference would this make in my life? And we all desire to live a life that has meaning and purpose and value. 
And it's in, it was in that moment that I found this profound parallel reality. That as I listened to this idea of a religious order, I had reached my hand into a bucket full of grout. Hearing of the priests killing an animal for the sins of the people. Then I pulled my hand out holding that grout and smeared it across the concrete listening to the priest smearing the blood of the animal across the altar for the forgiveness of the people. And there's profound parallel happening. That to be a follower of Jesus means, as we will discover this morning, that we are all called to be a royal priesthood. And what this means is that we're not all called necessarily into paid vocational ministry, but we're all called to be God's representatives in our homes, in our schools, in our places of work. This is our call. And it comes from this idea that we are actually to be priests. And priests were to stand at the interface between God and humanity, mediating the goodness of God to creation and creation pointing towards the goodness of God. And this is our big idea for this morning, that we are called to reflect God's glory to the world and to point the world towards God's glory. This is our call this morning. And so with that being said, you can open up your Bible to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and we're going to dive into our text this morning. And so Peter is writing this letter to these Christians who are facing persecution uh, for following Jesus. And he's calling them to this incredible calling. And this is what he says, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And so first, to reflect God's glory in the world, it starts by recognizing God's call on our life. If you have your own Bible, you can highlight or underline this idea of a royal priesthood. So what does it mean to be a royal priesthood? To understand that, I want us to actually go back to the beginning of the story, to creation. And God, in his grace and wisdom and wonder creates the world. And there's this beautiful poetic picture of creation in which God is creating his cosmic temple. A temple is a place in which God can dwell. And so the presence of God is going to dwell in creation with his people. And so in ancient Near Eastern times, when you were creating a temple, the very last thing that would go into a temple would be an idol or an image of that God to represent that God in the very presence of that God. And we look in the story of creation in Genesis, near the end of creation, God creates humanity in his image to be the representation of him to his creation. And this is the call that we all receive as being created in the image of God. N.T. Wright uh, says it this way, the royal priestly vocation of all human beings, it seems, consists in this, to stand at the interface between God and his creation, bringing God's wisdom and generous order to the world, and giving articulate voice to creation's glad and grateful praise to its maker. 
this is what it looks like to be God's royal priesthood. And in fact, we can actually understand this in an image, the image of a mirror. That as we see in that picture, this car is driving in utter darkness, but the car is reflecting the light of the sun into the darkness. And this is what Peter talks about. We are called from darkness into light, that we actually are not the light ourselves. God is the light. But as our role is to reflect the light and goodness of God into the darkness and brokenness of our world. This is what it looks like to be a royal priesthood. But as we continue in the story of creation, we realize this doesn't go how it should. That Adam and Eve do not desire to pick up this calling. In fact, they rather be the source of light, the source of what they want to understand is goodness and truth. And so what happens is there's sin enters the picture and this broken relationship. And because God is holy and the essence of all that is good, sin cannot dwell in his presence. So Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, expelled out of the garden. But God his desire is to be with his people. His desire is for this royal priestly vocation to be continued on. And so what does he do? He calls the nation of Israel to take up that mantle. In fact, in our uh, section of the Bible in 1 Peter 2, he quotes a verse from Exodus 19.6, which says, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all people. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That Israel was called to take up this mantle to reflect the goodness of God to the other nations in the world. But Israel still had sin and brokenness in their community and so God created from that nation a tribe, Levi, to be the priesthood. To, and the role of these priests was to mediate the covenant between God and his people. To ensure that the people were faithful to God and to act as the intermediators. But also to help make sacrifices and atone for the sin and brokenness of that community. They were to stand at that interface between God and the community. But here's one of the most profound things when we come to our text this morning, is that this call is actually extended for all of God's people. That we are all called to be part of this royal priesthood. That we see that this was something restricted for a specific tribe and a specific nation, but with Jesus becomes our high priest. And that as a result, when we become part of this new family of God, we inherit this call on our life. And so I want us to get practical to think about what does it look like to be a royal priest in this time and in this place and in your life. And so to do that, uh, I'm going to kind of turn towards, uh, there was a very helpful article on the idea of vocation by Klaus Bockelmann. And he talks about vocation in three different levels, each level fitting within each other. So he says on the very first level, there's this universal vocation. Uh, we can have that slide go up. And this is the idea of the cultural mandate, that we are called as image bearers of God 
to reflect the goodness and creativity of God in the world. That we do this through creating the idea of culture, culture making. That we do it through creating art, through running businesses, through creating products that solve issues. That we are called to reflect the goodness of God in his creation. It also means that we are image bearers and that everyone else is an image bearer as well which means we are to treat them with dignity and respect. And this is the idea of civil responsibility, to be a good citizen in the place that we dwell. This is the base level of our calling. Then we move to the second level, which is our distinctly Christian calling. And it can be summarized in two ways. One, with the great commandment, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind but also to love our neighbor as ourself. Secondly, there's this idea of the Great Commission, which is to go out into all nations and to create disciples, that we are all called to make disciples in our context. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, this is at the base level what you are called to do. You're called to love God, to live in line with how he's designed us to live, you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. And you're called to make disciples and to be part of a Christian community. But also there's a third level, which is to deal with personal calling. And this is asking the question, how has God called me in this time and in this space to live out that cultural mandate and that Christian calling? How has God wired you, gifted you, Desires that he's given you, life experience that he's given you, burning for the broken people. Who are the people that God is calling you to love? This is our personal calling. And we must remember this calling sits within the other callings. That my personal calling means, at the same time, I'm still part of a Christian community. I'm still in community with other Christians. But how has God called me specifically in this time, in this place. How has God called you? Maybe God is calling you into a service profession to work in the hospital with people that are broken and hurting in our city. Maybe God has gifted you with great administrative and finance, financial ability where you get to work with people at businesses where you take them from a place of financial difficulty to a space where they can become generous. How is God calling you to be a part of this community? Has he given you a heart for the next generation? Maybe youth or kids or young adults. Or maybe he's given you a heart for the broken neighborhoods around this very building. To be part of the Eden ministry. To serve the people that are hurting and broken. Maybe he's called you to, to join and be a welcome greeter. Which might just seem like... A very medial task, but it's actually something vitally important for people that are coming through the door. You get to be the first face and representation of this community to welcome them in. How is God calling you in this time and in this place? But we must also recognize that this is a great call, but it's a call that comes from a life of grace. And so this leads to our second point, that if we are to reflect God's glory, we do it when we first receive God's grace and mercy. So if you have a Bible picking up in verse 10, Peter says, 
once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Peter, in this moment, he's actually picking up on the book of Hosea. And if you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, it has to do with uh, this prophet, obviously named Hosea, but speaking to Israel in exile. Israel called to reflect God's glory to the world, yet they become unfaithful. They get caught in idolatry, and they turn away from God and become unfaithful to God. So God gives them up to those idols, and they get brought into exile. And here we see in the book of Hosea one of the most profound and impactful stories in all of Scripture. It has one of the most craziest sermon illustrations you will ever find. And so God calls Hosea. He says, I want you to go and to take this woman to be your wife. She's sexually promiscuous, and she is going to be unfaithful in your marriage, but I want you to take her as your wife. And so Hosea obeys God and marries Gomer. And during this marriage, they have kids. And this marriage is designed to represent the relationship between God and Israel. So first we see there's a daughter in Hosea 1.6. God tells Hosea to call his daughter. He says, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Now, if this daughter was destined to become a wrestler, this would be a very good name. <laughs> Here comes no mercy. <laughs> but in a relationship that represents God and Israel, this is a very bad sign. <laughs> Next, we see that they have a son. And God says, I want you to call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is not a good situation. <laughs> and Gomer, like Israel, leaves Hosea. She goes to live with other men, and she gets herself in a lot of trouble. She ends up in slavery. And I could just imagine, here's... Hosea, brokenhearted. The woman he married left him, and now he's there as a single father with his kids who have horrible names which will likely give them emotional trauma for the rest of their lives. <laughs> but it's in this moment that we see a beautiful picture of redemption. God says to Hosea, I want you to go find Gomer, and I want you to actually pay the price to buy her out of slavery, even though she was already your wife. And so Gomer does this, or sorry, Hosea does this, and he buys Gomer out of slavery. And this becomes a picture of God and Israel. And in this beautiful point of redemption in which Peter is picking up on in Hosea 2, 23, God says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And here is the most important thing when we recognize our calling is it comes out of a place of mercy. That even when we are unfaithful to God, that God is faithful to us. And I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you feel that brokenness. You don't feel close to God. And you say, you don't, you don't know what I did last night. How could God love me? This is how much God loves you. And we see this story represent the story of Jesus. 
that even when we were unfaithful, that Jesus pursued us, that he paid the price to buy us out of the slavery of sin, that he gave his entire life for us in his death on the cross. And now we have access to God, that sin can't dwell in God's presence. But we see when Jesus dies, the curtain that separated the presence of God from the people was torn from top to bottom. That because of Jesus, we have access to God. That we have a new life. That we, our life comes out of a position of mercy. And here's how it makes a difference when, it pro, when we approach our life and vocation. That when we talk about this text, it has this idea of reaching some of the most important desires of our heart. That's one, am I worthy of love? Can I belong to community? And if we don't grasp this mercy, our relationships will become places where we need to find validation. Our work will become the place where I need to prove that I am worthy. But when we see the grace of God in our life, where Jesus says, once you were not, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You are worthy of love. Once you are not a part of a community, now you are a part of this community. You have a sense of belonging. That means our relationships and our work becomes the place in which we live out that grace and mercy. Because what God does to us, he wants to also do through us. And that we get to become ambassadors of the very grace that we have received. And this leads us to the point of responding in God's world. So picking up in verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That there is this temptation to live our life in line with different set of values. That we are called to be God's representatives in the world, to live in line with how God's desired us to live. And yet there's this war and temptation to put other things above our love for God and a love for other people. And to understand how are we to respond in God's world, I want us to look at three different images. That first we, that we see here. There's the idea of the sacred represented by a monk, the idea of the secular represented by Ray Kroc, who is the founder of McDonald's, and then the incarnational view represented by a lowly butcher in Montana. This sounds like the beginning of a good joke. A monk, a McDonald's CEO, and a butcher walk into a bar. <laughs> but to understand this, I want us to first share a story that has helped kind of frame this uh, for me in my life. When I first started my master's, and I moved into seminary, I remember my very first class, and I sat beside this guy, and I started talking to him, getting to hear his life story. And he was telling me that he was from Denver, and that he uh, worked in this great corporate corporation as an accountant. And he says, you know, actually, I make quite a bit of money. And I said, that's nice. I'm a broke college student. <laughs> but he started to share his story. He says, you know, I'm really involved in my church. And so I go to my church. We uh, talk about mission, vision, values. 
We do team building exercises. We go on retreats. He says, and then I go to my work. We talk about mission, vision, values. We do team building exercises. We go on retreats. And he says, to be honest, I just need to know what the difference is. <laughs> he says, both ways, I, right now, I feel like my soul is empty. And there's nothing wrong with retreats, visions, values, team building. Those are good things. But we don't recognize this temptation. We can, in essence, check our soul at the door. And so the first way that we see the, the passions of our flesh wage war against our soul is in the sacred view. And so during the dark ages, we see these monks trying to hold on to what is true Christianity. What does it truly mean to be an authentic Christian? And so they defined it as to join a monastery, to get away from the corruption of this broken world and to become a monk. This was what was considered a sacred sacred vocation. Everything else was secular. And you know what? There actually was some good intention, but like fruit that was ripe, it went rotten. And instead of loving the world, they became fearful of the world. In fact, the very picture on, uh, on the screen there is of this monk who decided to live his entire life on the top of a pole to get away from the world. And he actually had to have his food and stuff lifted up to him. But there was a fear of the world. And so there's this desire to, uh, I think, for many of us to have this similar way where we could just, how can I just isolate myself in my holy huddle to get away from the world? And yet the love of God makes no grounds into the rest of the world. On the flip side, we have the view represented by Ray Kroc, who is the found, debated founder of McDonald's. If you'd seen the, the movie The Founder, he's the main character, and he's someone that's full of ambition. And he's building this company at, all co at any cost. It didn't matter. And he has this great quote. He says, I believe in God, family, and McDonald's. And in the office, the order is reversed. <laughs> But I feel like for many of us, this is our temptation. That this secular view, we idolize our work. And that actually becomes lifted above God and the love for others. And it's okay if you're a Christian in this worldview, as long as it doesn't impact your work. There's this concept of you have to check your soul at the door. Here's the problem with both the sacred and the secular view is that they're both self-help projects. They both fail to recognize the grace that we've received. In this uh, sacred view, we exchange our role to be a mirror that reflects God's goodness to become a magnifying glass, where we try to weaponize the holiness of God. We become like a little kid with a magnifying glass, trying to find ants to burn with the power of the sun to make us feel large and in charge. On the flip side, we have such a desire to be relevant to the world that we, we still remain as a reflective mirror, yet instead of reflecting the light, the source, we become a mirror that's thrown into a dark room. And all we do is reflect the brokenness of the world back to itself. But there is a different way to live, a different way to operate. And this is what I'd like to call the incarnational way the way of Jesus.
This is how Peter defines this way. He says in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That we are to be among the Gentiles, among the people that don't know God. Yet we are to do that in a way that when they look at our life, they're drawn towards the goodness of God. That we see that this is the way of Jesus. He was fully human, fully divine. And he comes, and in the paraphrase of Eugene Peterson, he moves into the neighborhood. And speaking of Eugene Peterson, I've been reading through his biography. And if you don't know him, he's the person that has translated uh, the message paraphrase Bible. But he has a, a very profound pastoral heart. And he starts to talk about his life growing up and the impact of his dad, who was a butcher in Montana, who ran a little butcher shop, worked there six days a week. And he said, this is where I encountered the incarnational way. And so I just want to read a section from this book because I think it so helpfully grasps what does it mean to be a royal priest in our everyday life and vocation. And so here's what it says. That butcher shop was my introduction into the world of the congregation, Eugene said. The people who came into our shop were not just customers. Something else defined them. It always seemed more like a congregation than a store. And while his father's passive disconnection was palpable at home, in the store, Eugene saw him and learned from him at his best. His father treated each person with kindness, those who became true friends, as, as well as those who increasingly fussed over the bacon or hovered over the trimming and the weighing. Don Peterson welcomed all his customers as they were, valuing them whether they unfold crisp bills for the finest ribeye or fished in their pockets for coins and walked out with packages of hot dogs. He treated each person with dignity, whether an elder from a Methodist church or one of the women from a brothel a couple blocks away. Eugene later viewed his father's work as priestly work, considered it as one of his dad's greatest gifts to him. The priestly connection was visceral. As Eugene saw the Old Testament image from the church, priests slaughtering the sacrifices, woven with, his father, with the work his father did six days out of the week. The butcher shop was a place he would later describe the church with lots of misfits and oddballs. It placed him day after day in the context of spectacular ordinariness. And he learned to see it as holy. What does it look like for you to be a priest in your proverbial butcher shop? That we see in the life of Don Peterson, he displayed what it looked like to embody this incarnational way. To respond to God's grace in God's world. To display that love to the people that he worked with. And in that moment, you find the profound holiness in the ordinary things of everyday life. And for us to live in this way, 
we do this in response by first recognizing the holy nature of our work. That when we go to work or when we are in our homes or in our school, that we are to do everything to the glory of God. That God is creating all things new and we actually get to join in in that redemptive mission in the world. And that means when we, for me, when I was working on Fridays, shoveling, I wasn't just doing it to collect a paycheck, but you have to do it unto the glory of God. This means that our work matters because our work is not just for ourselves, but it's a way of our worship towards God. But we also must recognize the very eternal nature of our work. That Peter says that we are to live in this way to display God's goodness so when God comes back in the day of his visitation, that the Gentiles might see that, that we are to live and work in light of eternity because the very people we work with, their eternal nature holds in the balance. C.S. Lewis, in one of his profound essays, The Weight of Glory, summarizes it so well. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. But as immortals, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendor. That we live in light of eternity. That in the end, God is going to come back and make all things new. That he is going to provide, uh, that he's going to right all the wrongs. And his desire is that for all of us to be in relationship with him. And yet, because of sin, we are separated from God. And without the grace of Jesus, we are destined for eternity apart from the presence of God. But as we talked about in the story of Hosea and Gomer, God has pursued us. He's paid that penalty for us. And that his desire is that we can actually receive mercy and grace. And in the end of eternity, live in life, in love with him. We are called to be God's people and to live in light of eternity. That means our work matters. That means the very customers that you serve are immortal. That means the very co-worker that's always difficult, that seems to get on your nerve, is immortal. That means the very relationships that we take place within this community, that these are relationships that are going to echo into eternity. So what does it look like for you to live in light of eternity? We are to recognize the weight of this calling, but here's the good news. We're not called to bear it. We are not the source of light. We are not the person that saves others. That is a responsibility of God. But God has called us to this beautiful vocation to reflect that grace to the world. That we are called to be God's representatives in the world. To point people towards God. To live in a way that only the gospel can be the answer. And so for you this morning... What does it look like to respond to this call? What does it look like for you to be God's priest in your proverbial butcher shop, in your places of work? 
How does it change when we see our work as a place in which heaven and earth collide? The place in which we get to represent the goodness of God to creation. And then as creation gets to see our work, we get to reflect them back towards God. You are called into this glorious calling to reflect the goodness of God in this world. Let me pray for us as we move into uh, finishing our gathering. Jesus, we come before you and we just recognize the incredible cost that you paid for us. That while we were broken far off, that you had come and paid the price and penalty for us so that we can have eternal life in you. And Jesus, we thank you that you've not only saved us, but you've called us to become a new people. You've called us into a beautiful vocation and calling to reflect the goodness that you've extended to us. And so, Jesus, we just pray that we can recognize that grace in our life and that we can become ambassadors of that grace in our work, in our homes, in our school, and in our everyday life. We love you, Lord. Help us to become more like you. In your name, amen. Hey, and welcome back. Thanks for listening to this Sunday's message. We hope that we've helped you in your spiritual journey and that you're drawing closer to God. At Crosspoint, we gather on Sundays at 10 a.m. in Northeast Edmonton and throughout the week in something we love to call home groups. Home groups are encouraging and transformational communities for people just like you. We believe that the journey of faith is done together. So we hope that you'll connect with us at thecrosspointchurch.ca. Now, let me remind you of who you are. You are the people of God, called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are.